Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Terry, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm glad to have you here. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yes. First of all, very good to be with you. I'm Terry Coopers, K-U-P-E-R-S, M-D, M-S-P. I'm a professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. And I do general psychiatry. I do community psychiatry. And throughout my career, I've worked in jails and prisons as an expert witness in class action lawsuits. Could you take me a little bit about your work in prisons and just I'm, I'm very, I'm very interested in kind of learning more about it just because I came across one of the books about uh, that you wrote about madness and prisons, because I mean, that's obviously everyone knows that obviously prisons have a very dark kind of history a little bit, at least from what I've explored. Um, and I'm just I'm interested in kind of learning, I guess, the full scope of it. Sure. When I, I completed my training in community psychiatry and psychoanalysis, in the early 70s. And I was asked by the ACLU to go into the Los Angeles County Jail and look at conditions as well as the uh, mental health care that was available there. And I was absolutely shocked and horrified. First of all, half the people there, three quarters of the people were black in the Los Angeles County Jail. And half of them had serious mental illness. And they were acting out in the jail. They were being loud. They were um, uh, assaultive to other uh, prisoners, or they were being victimized. They were being kept in solitary confinement. And this was a shock to me, because as a community psychiatrist, I was very optimistic about our ability to treat people with serious mental illness. If we actually paid attention to them, gave them medications, not an overdose, but also with the medications, we did treatment. We did individual and group therapy. We helped them with jobs. They would get better, not entirely. People with serious mental illness tend to have a lifelong condition, but they can live a very high quality life. But if you put them in a crowded jail and they're victimized and they're not provided any services to help them sort out their emotions, they get into a lot of trouble. And it gets down to maybe the most important consideration of my career in corrections, which is you want to be very careful that what you do to people who have committed crimes or been uh, in a state of psychotic decompensation, what you do to them doesn't make their condition worse. For instance, that going to jail doesn't make them more likely to return to drug use and crime. What you want to do is set up a system that helps them to straighten themselves out and live a decent life. And that, in fact, is shockingly opposite of what's happening in our jails and prisons. So where does it start? I would think like, I mean, as soon as you're thrown into a jail and you usually commit a crime, there's already kind of a stigma that gets placed on top of you where either nobody wants to listen to you 
um, or kind of your rights as a human being kind of get taken away, obviously, because you're incarcerated, but there's more than that. It's kind of like this invisible wall that we put up in our minds to start saying this is a bad person of society and you shouldn't either treat them as a normal, equal individual or you just don't listen to what they say. Well, that's right. I, I think in sort of unpacking this issue, it's very important where we start. And what you've done is started with the individual who's in trouble, who's probably broken a law. And possibly it's a very mild law, like um, asking for money on the street or, or, or near an ATM. Jaywalking. Jaywalking. They get arrested, particularly if they're a person of color, and they get taken to jail. That's not where I want to start the story. Where I want to start the story is massive cuts in social welfare safety net programs. And that's what was going on starting in the mid-70s in the United States. So you had deinstitutionalization, which was the release of a lot of patients from the mental hospitals because of abuses that were going on. There was a lot of exposés in the 50s and 60s about overuse of medication, involuntary electric shock, sexual abuse of patients, and basically chronicity. They were being given very high doses of medications to keep them quiet, but it also made them into kind of zombies. So there was a plan to release people from the hospitals, but to transfer the resources, the funding of mental health treatment into the community which had a very, very good prognosis. That is when we take someone and don't put them in the hospital, have them live in the community, connect them with services they need, housing, vocational training, and do really good mental health treatment, they get better. So instead, what happened is the funding for those programs was cut successively incrementally. And so we had a lot of people who were released from the hospitals had no place to go, and there were no services or relatively less services. There were services, but they were defunded. The funding was much less. Then comes the situation you're talking about. With the defunding, does that? I'm guessing that probably comes from various aspects of it. But I was, I'm curious. Do you think it's because the always the main method we've always used was kind of like this? isolate or separate from the rest of the group, the people that like the community aspect of things. Like if you kind of take a problem or a problem person and you're able to shove them somewhere else where it doesn't affect maybe the rest of the population, then there's, you got rid of the problem. You don't have to worry about it, except the person that is now being stuck or isolated from that institution is not possibly getting the help that they need. Well, that's absolutely right. And what they're also not getting is any public attention. So today we have a problem with unhoused people and some of them, not, not a majority of them, but some of them have a serious mental illness and they're on the street and people are upset about it because they're visible. Well, one solution is to lock them up, get them off the street. And then what happens, their situation does not improve. Wherever we're locking them up and today it's in the jails and prisons, their situation deteriorates seriously. However, they're not in sight, out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. And the whole idea of lock them up and throw away the key is based on that. We, the public, don't want to see something like a large number of unhoused people, which reminds us that our democracy is not democratic and is not working. So we lock them up and throw them away. Yes, you're right. That's gone on throughout history. But something happened in this country after the Second World War 
we had tremendous economic boom, which, which lasted from the Second World War into the 1970s. Our political winds shifted. And if you look at the funding, for instance, war on poverty, social security, Medicare, et cetera, in the 60s, we had a massive um, uh, financial bonus in our economy. And so we opted to take care of, to use the government to take care of the most disadvantaged among us. By the 70s, and President Nixon's term was the turning point, the money was exhausted. The American economy wasn't so wonderful at the time. And there was a stinginess towards social welfare programs that help disadvantaged people. The area where I was working was mental health. So it's people with serious mental illness that I was advocating for. I wanted them to get treatment, housing, et cetera. And it was a downhill battle from then until now. It's called neoliberalism. Uh, the theory that we should cut the taxes on the rich, we should stop regulation. We should also cut all social welfare safety net programs for disadvantaged people. And that's been the reigning ideology with some exceptions, but that's been the reigning ideology since. So the budgets have been cut. As a direct result of reduced budgets for safety net programs, the most disadvantaged people get into worse and worse trouble. So we have more problems with unhoused people, with people doing drugs, with people with mental illness who do not receive the treatment they need. And that's why there was a massive um, transfer of people with mental illness into the jails and prisons. It had been going on for a while when I went and looked in the LA County Jail in the 1970s, but it was a shock to me because my idea was that people with mental illness were getting treatment. When you say your idea was that people were getting mental treatment, is that just because like the public, I mean, it's not our fault that we're probably not more connected to what's going on in institutions, but there isn't a whole lot of, I guess, observations on institutions unless you're maybe in a private field or you're in a practice that does focus on getting help to people in those institutions. Like if you ask anybody what goes on in, in a prison, mostly the, and I've been called out on it too, which is just like, where'd you get that from a TV show? It's like, well, yeah, because that's, I mean, it's really when we see it is, is on a TV show. I mean, unless you're watching cop or you're watching something else, but even that's kind of glamored up to be like reality television. It's the, the disconnect. I mean, you mentioned a couple of social programs that were cut or, you know, programs that were helping out that might cause people, I guess, that need them to start experiencing some type of mental health issues. I mean, what are some common examples? Is that something like food stamps? Um, you are absolutely right. And that is what goes on. And the worst abuses, the torture that goes on in our society, like Abu Ghraib. Abu Ghraib was a uh, prison camp that was exposed and they were torturing and sexually humiliating uh, Middle Eastern uh, prisoners. Uh, they call them prisoners of war, but actually there was a lot of civilians in there. Um, we didn't know that. When that came out in the news, we were all shocked that the United States could behave like that. I think there's a kind of split consciousness in the public. On the one hand, we pride ourselves on our democracy, our kindness, our generosity, our taking care of people. On the other hand, we have one of the most brutal prison systems in the world. 5% of the world's population live in the United States. 25% of the world's prisoners 
are in the United States. So we imprison more people and the prison imprisonment rate has been rising since the 70s. It's multiplied by about eight times. And the proportion of prisoners with serious mental illness has been rising at the same time. So basically, there's been a transfer of, of people with mental illness from psychiatric hospitals in the 1950s, the state hospitals, the VA hospitals, to the jails and prisons. So that in 2014, a big research project found that there are 10 times as many people with serious mental illness in jail and prison as there are in the psychiatric hospitals. Now, that's from a sane asylum closing down as well, too. They kind of pushed them into prisons because they had nowhere else to put people that were inside these insane asylums. That's right. First, they let them loose and left them in the community without services. And they fell into being unhoused and doing drugs and that kind of thing. Then they locked them up for a, a series of, of criminal violations. But really, the criminal violations weren't as important as their status as mentally ill. So we do that. And then the American people say, well, we still have a democracy, right? And we still take care of the most disadvantaged among us. Look, we have food. Yeah, we have shelters and, and food banks and such. Doesn't touch the problem. So we have an, a lot of people who are disadvantaged in this society. And what has happened, I think partly, and nobody says this, no politician says, I want to lock up everybody. Well, uh, Mayor Adams of New York has just said that, but um, no one says, I want to lock up these people to get them out of sight so we can keep believing that we live in a democratic society. They don't say that, but that's what they do. And they do it by cutting the funds to public mental health services, among other social safety net programs. Now, is there a way, like, what's the guidelines, I would say, that would get someone locked up if maybe, because, I mean, screaming, the weird, here's like the double standard I really don't like is that when someone's drunk, then get dr thrown in the drunk tank. If they're publicly screaming or they're being kind of rude and they're kind of, I don't know, let's say someone strips down naked, okay? But if someone has a mental health problem and does the same thing, they get locked up and it's usually seen a little bit differently. Like everyone goes, oh, that person's drunk, they'll be fine in the morning. But with someone with mental health, it scares them. It freaks them out. They have no way to deal with this. They don't, maybe they don't understand it themselves. And the easiest problem is send them away to go get the help that they need. But there's that disconnect again, which is when they do get sent away, they're not getting the help that they need. But when we see someone go off to a, a doctor's retreat or whatever you want to say, you just kind of think that when they come back, the problem's going to be fixed. And I mean, I'm not going to blame doctors and say that it's not primary care focus that's getting put into them. I think it's a lot to do with the resources that they're allocated, um, the amount of time that they're given as well, too. And I mean, there's we should have, I guess, better safety methods in place as well, too, in case something like this does start to happen or we can stop maybe the rise of this from happening. I mean, look at the number of homeless population that's out there right now and the number of people that will just say, well, I changed my walk from going down that street to just going, a, you know, a different direction. It's a little bit longer. It's like so you're just avoiding the problem. It's like, well, how do we make sure that if we do get resources expended, that it actually does go to the people that are supposed to be deserving those resources? Yes. I, I agree with all of that. You know, if you look at the problem of mental illness, it's not a static, it's not an innate problem in our social structure that certain people are mentally ill and acting badly. Um, the amount of mental illness in a society goes up and down with history, having to do with a lot of social forces. For instance, at the beginning of the Second World War, mental hospitals emptied out 
And the reason was, is we needed soldiers. So we lowered the bar for being an American GI. And a lot of people who were sort of marginally in a state hospital because they couldn't work and they had, they heard voices, they had some symptoms, um, would be able to either go to the military if they weren't too disturbed or go get a job that someone had left because they went to the military. That's why women went to work in the Second World War. Well, people with mental illness went to work and people who had been in jail and prison. Not a single individual who's in jail for a murder. They don't get released because we're at war. However, if you look at the whole population in the jail, thousands and thousands of people are released because there isn't as much an emphasis on keeping people in jail. There's more of an emphasis on building the army and keeping the workforce occupied. So people get out of the mental hospitals, the rate of admission to the asylums went way down. At other times it goes way up. And the reason is because we're actually entering a economic downturn or people are having a hard time on the streets or we're having a lot of natural disasters and people go into jails and prisons or state hospitals in order to get shelter. So that changes over time. If we invest in public mental health services, among other safety net uh, efforts, um, people with mental illness become relatively stable. There's exceptions in all directions, but a lot of people become functional. They can even hold a job while taking psychiatric medications. If there's a decrease in the budget, for instance, people lose their health insurance or the public does not, the government doesn't pay Medicaid and uh, Medicare, um, then a lot of people who previously were treated and able to live a relatively quality life fall apart. They don't get the treatment they need or they don't get the education or the vocational training and they become worse off, they get into trouble. And then beginning in the 1970s, and this was the same time that community mental health was being defunded. We'd had very rich funding for community mental health in the 1960s with President Kennedy's Community Mental Health Centers Act. That money ran out after eight years. It was a five-year pilot project with three-year extension. So by the 70s, that money was uh, running out. It's the 70s when deinstitutional deinstitutionalization started to happen, you know, very aggressively. And then a lot of people were getting out of residential treatment and were being cast into the community with no services. And so a certain number of them got into trouble and then became uh, the, the problem that we just discussed happened, which is people didn't like to see people taking their clothes off, screaming and being, you know, inappropriate on the street. So we started locking them up and we increased the laws like panhandling near an ATM that would cause them to be locked up. And we started moving them into the jails and prisons. I'm talking about at the peak, two and a half million people in our jails and prisons, and approximately 50% of them have serious mental illness. That is a social policy direction. That is, we as a country decided that instead of providing adequate treatment, which we were approaching in the 1960s for people with serious mental illness, we were going to deny them treatment, 
deny them vocational services, deny them supported housing, and lock them up in jail and prison. That is what we accomplish. Nobody gives a, a talk and says, that's what I want to do, but that's what we did. I would have tried to share the blame a little bit as a society, as the public, as we should probably be more educated on at least mental health. I think everyone talks about experiencing, and I'm pretty sure you're never, I mean, you're lucky if you don't ever experience depression or some type of stress, but there are serious mental health disorders, whether that you're born with or you develop later down the road. I think PTSD is probably the most acknowledged one. But I would have shared the blame and said the public should do a better job at trying to get educated more, you know, reach out to people to be able to understand mental health so they're not so freaked out when it does happen. But sadly, in our society today, we've gotten to the point where if we see somebody nodding out in the street, we pull out our cell phones and record a video, uh, we make a funny TikTok or something like that. So I kind of lost a little bit of hope there, but I would think it would start with the people that are making the policies. You mentioned Kennedy, and I think a lot of the reason why Kennedy was even doing things of that sort was because he had a family member who had a, a very big mental health issue. And when we start talking about understanding this, I would lead it now to nonprofit organizations that had a solidified budget from the government allocated every single year to be able to help keep these programs sustained. Because the issue is, is if we talk about mental health services, that's the first thing to get cut. I mean, in the eyes of the military, some of these people either don't have any family members that experience any type of mental health disorders or they don't experience it themselves. Now, do I believe that they have some days where they're sad and they might be depressed? Sure. But I don't think it's on a daily basis and maybe even goes down to a deeper point like some people in our society that feel like people are stalking them or they're constantly being watched. Real mental health issues. I mean – when we talk about mental health, you got to kind of find the bar there because, I mean, back in the day, ADHD would have been, and I have that, they would have gave me a lobotomy and told me, you know, hey, good job, you're on your way. There are serious, very serious mental health disorders out there, and a lot of the people that are making policies, they don't really come from a place of either understanding it or come from a place where someone in their family might have experienced it. I'm not saying you. I'm saying people from the very, very top that are allocating budgets. So if you're looking from a defense aspect, a lot of people would push money more into defense, even though there's plenty of defense money already and i think you got to kind of look at like I, I hate to say it like this but happy people better society i guess i mean if you take care of your people there's going to be less social issues a lot of less problems when you focus on the core ones that we have here but our government's very focused into the military and focused in making a strong bold image which i mean it's on a crappy foundation on the aspect of not just our history but also the public is not necessarily happy I mean, social media buys our attention for a little bit, but also creates probably some of the most mental health issues out there as well, too. Well, I, I totally agree with all of that. And I think stigma is very, very important. People with mental illness are the object of stigma. We're seeing a reversal of sorts right now because of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. An awful lot of students around the country, I'm talking about grade school students, stayed home and did their education on the screen. Now, the result empirical studies have found has been an increase in depression and anxiety widespread among our youth who have been denied classroom experience for two or three years, the normal social process in which they grow up. And so we have a high level of suicide, of drug use, of depression, anxiety among kids. There's a lot of public attention to that. And the legislature is talking about more funding for mental health because this is sort of the fire that they wanna put out. 
Um, now, the plight of people with serious mental illness, you're right. People with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, what I'm calling major depressive disorder, serious mental illness, those conditions are there, they have complex etiologies. There is some genetic component. There's some people are just, you know, prone to the mental illness, and some people have massive trauma, which sets off mental illness. Those people are not your average high school kid who's depressed or anxious and thinking of suicide. Those people have a lifelong problem that we call serious mental illness. They need treatment. On average, they can't afford the treatment they need. And so the state needs to, to step in and there needs to be public mental health services. Meanwhile, look what's going on in our political scene. We are having a war between one faction and the other where nobody talks to each other and nobody listens to each other. Look at what goes on in Congress. And a lot of it has to do with race. There is a very, very strong inclination towards white supremacy in the United States. And it's being focused on the problem of immigrants of color coming into the country. So this underlying sort of sense of white supremacy is being channeled into anti-immigration policies. And that's where the news is. That's what's important. When you have a situation politically like that, there tends to be a um, dynamic of treating others, people who are different than ourselves in a very cruel and unfriendly way. And what happens then, that's the large political picture, people with mental illness are among the others. They're among the people who don't receive any kindness in a society that's split and fighting around issues like uh, gay and lesbian rights or immigration or something like that. Well, people with mental illness are a perfect victim for the hatred that is increased in a political time like that. And that's what we have. So there's no sympathy for people with serious mental illness. And that's why they're in jail and prison. They're not getting the services. They're not getting the housing. We as a society are very unkind to that group of disadvantaged people. Could you pour that down a little bit differently to not just a white problem or just white supremacy issue, but also just an issue of just people and the fact that they just don't like things that are different than them. I mean, I think that's an inherent thing about people. I think a lot of people are afraid that if immigrants come over here, they start thinking that, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job and then I'm gonna have to do all these things and their life is going to be hell. People just don't like change. That's the thing is like, if it's something that feels like it's going to threaten your routine, they get really, really freaked out about it from like a very high standpoint. And I start going, what happens if we just change the housing issues? We make easier living. I mean, if you boil it down to kids, kids that are leaving high school, a lot of kids are, I mean, I'm 25. I still live it with like one of my parents parents. So, cause I live in a place where it's $1,500 a month and that's cheapest and that's one bedroom, one bath. And it's like, okay, so then where do you go from there? But it's a lot of pressure when you start going, what happens? And that's why you have kids that are staying home until probably around their thirties or maybe a little bit later than that. And, but back in the day, you used to either move out and probably get your own place and probably had like five different kids already at the age of 20. Cause I mean, that's how my grandparents were. And that's how that whole generation thing was. We got kids in high school now that feel like that life is kind of screwed out for them in general. And whether they think it's, you know, some other people above 
of them another generation that kind of screwed them over, which could be true in some aspects. But what's the option that they go to? And then they start feeling worthless. And then they start feeling like suicide is the only answer, which is probably the farthest thing from the answer. And so we start going, let's talk about the housing issue. If we are able to give more people better time and being able to get their own place without maybe, I don't know, breaking an arm and a leg and never sleeping just to be able to afford that place in I, raising living conditions is probably the best answer, but also how many people are misdiagnosed or not misdiagnosed, not diagnosed for having a mental health issue because they're so overworked. They don't know when to focus in on themselves and realize that there's something going on. You know, this nine to five working lifestyle has kind of changed to more like you're sleeping five hours and you're working the rest of it. And that is because the standards of living have gone up and people either need to pick up two jobs or they have to work extra shifts to be able to afford those types of things. Well, I, I think there's a lot of important ideas we could uh, develop in all of that. Um, you know, there are inclinations in people. Some of them are good. I mean, we have a tendency to take care of our neighbors, to take care of our children, to, to want something better for our family. We have lots of good um, directions going as part of being human. We also have negative directions. We have anger, we have murderous feelings, we want revenge. There are a wide spectrum of human potentialities and inclinations. The question is that as a society, which of those inclinations are we going to support? So for instance, are we going to make it easy or hard to help one's neighbor? And this is coming out in the whole discussion of unhoused people today. People who are not housed, they're not living on the street because it's a better place to live than having a home. Um, they're living on the street because they don't have the resources to have a home or they don't have the capacities to make the money, as you said. Uh, 1500 will not get you an apartment in the Bay Area. Um, so they don't have the resources and they're living on the street as a, as a terrible uh, condition for them. Now, are we going to look at them with some sympathy and say, let's see, what do they need? How can we help them get a break, find a place to live, find a way to make a living? Or are we going to say they're a nuisance on the street? Let's lock them up. That's so stupid, though. It's so stupid. That's right. But it's the two sides of, of the human condition. That is, we could be kind to them or we could be mean and punishing towards them. Our society has moved because of frustration, because the economy, in spite of all the numbers, is not great. People are not making more money than they made 10 years ago. There's got to be a fear out there of if you're nice to someone who's that instead of locking them up, then people will see it as like, look what attention or good stuff you get if you are like that. I know it's a dumb way of viewing it, but I'm just trying to view it from someone. Oh, that would no, you're absolutely right. Because right now, what we do on average with people who have serious mental illness is we deny them services because we've defunded all the social welfare safety net programs. And then we punish them harshly if they step out of line. And it's true that if you take a subgroup of that population and treat them right, for instance, you give them decent housing, you create a meaningful employment situation. For instance, you set up some kind of industry within which you can train people with minimal skills to do a meaningful job, and they do it. Those programs are successful. They're happening around the country. They're small. They don't have the attention of Congress yet, 
but those programs are happening. Various industries like supermarket chains are hiring disabled people. Those disabled people are able to find housing and with the minimal wage they make at the uh, food company, uh, they're able to sustain themselves in the community. That's a success. That person does not go to jail and becomes a taxpaying citizen. And that's a success. What we need to do is increase that direction so that we take care of more of the people who are disadvantaged and unable to float and they're drowning. And we start doing those programs. Now, what's happening in our Congress today? One party, the Republicans are saying, we're not gonna give any money for that kind of program. We're gonna cut those things. We're not gonna do public mental health clinics. We're not gonna do residential programs for people with mental illness because of the deficit. Well, the deficit, these programs don't affect the deficit. They're so small compared for instance, military spending. But there's this ideology of we can't help them. That will make our standard of living less. That's not true. The standard of living is less for most Americans because of a huge gap between rich and poor. And all I'm talking about is using the government to help the most disadvantaged in that situation. The bigger the gap between rich and poor, the less well people with serious mental illness do. They find themselves at the bottom of the bottom. So what if we set up programs to make their life sustainable so that we guarantee housing? We give people education more than we do now. You know, a lot of people who have mental illness and a lot of people who go to prison dropped out of school. And they dropped out because they had one or another idiosyncratic learning problem and their teacher had too many kids in the classroom and too much behavior problems to attend to what they needed to get a good education. What if we increase the budget for public education? I promise you that if across the board we increase public education in this country, rather than private education, which is where we're going right now, but if we increase the budget for public education, we accomplish things like integration of the schools, there would be much less mental illness because people would gain the education they need and be able to work. And then when they had emotional problems, that's in the context of having a place to live and having a job. And we can deal with that. If we have the resources, for instance, to provide therapy, mental health services to people, not according to their ability to pay, which is how it goes now, but because they deserve that. We think that someone with a serious mental illness should be treated adequately so that they have a chance to succeed in our society. We, we haven't talked much about jail and prison, which is where a lot of my work has gone. What's happened is we haven't done what I'm proposing here. As a society, we've become more and more cruel. Our funding for social safety net programs has diminished incrementally and progressively over 40 years. and People who fall through the cracks because they don't have the services they need, and I'm not just talking about mental health, but one of the services, public mental health treatment, they go to jail and prison. In jail and prison, they're forgotten by society at large, and they don't do well in jail and prison. The mental health services in jail and prison are not good. 
they tend to get into difficulty with behavior, breaking rules. They tend to be put in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement actually exacerbates their mental illness. So what's happening is the authorities in the jail and prison, the correction officers, the warden, are putting people in solitary in order to keep the jail or prison safe because they don't know how to manage these people. They, they're not mental health personnel, law enforcement. They don't know how to handle someone who's hearing a voice telling them to go sock that guard. And the guard says, oh, you can't do that. I'm going to beat you up and put you in segregation. They don't say, you're obviously having a mental health crisis, and I need to sit you down and let you see someone with mental health skills. Is hearing voices a mental health crisis? Yes, usually. The way it goes is I gotta that- I got to get checked. Okay. People with uh, conditions like schizophrenia, they have psychotic episodes. Now, if you're a lay person, which I would consider a correction officer, um, and someone is having a psychotic episode and hearing a voice telling them to disobey this person or hit this person, and they go and try to hit this person, that officer is not going to say, oh, maybe this person's having a psychotic episode and I should get them treatment. They're going to say, you can't do that. I'm going to defend myself and I'm going to put you in segregation. So what happens is in order to maintain the, the sort of quiet of the institution, a whole lot of people are put in solitary confinement. And we know from a huge amount of research that the solitary confinement makes their mental illness worse, more difficult to treat, more chronic, and their prognosis gets worse. So in my career, and this just happens to be because I'm a psychiatrist, I am concerned about that group of people with mental illness who are behind bars. And as I look at that population, I first have to conclude, and I go into the jails and prisons all the time as an expert witness for uh, lawsuits. And what I see is very poor mental health care. And I'm saying, how can you do that? How can you deny these people mental health care when they're so seriously ill? And a disproportionate number of them are in solitary confinement. I'm one of the researchers who, who have discovered that solitary confinement exacerbates mental illness. So back to the voices again, someone who has experienced voices, I'm talking about hallucinations, voices that are imaginary and command hallucinations, which is voices telling them to do something, usually having to do with breaking a law and getting in trouble. Uh, those people will respond to psychotropic medication and good treatment, psychotherapy where someone talks to them. If instead you put them in solitary, what it does is it makes the voices louder, essentially. I'm saying that in a sort of abstract sense. They, hear, they have more of a tendency to hear voices. They have more of a tendency to lose control of their behavior and do things that are considered rule-breaking. And then they get punished more. And if you do that to someone with a serious mental illness over time, the mental illness gets worse. They move from having an occasional psychotic episode to being psychotic all the time. And I discover people like this, like the person that you mentioned at the beginning, person who's sitting in solitary confinement, hallucinating, and nobody's doing anything to help them. And their condition is getting worse and worse, as is their prognosis. They're sort of the prototype of today's person with serious mental illness behind bars. Just a quick aside or question, but when you get to a tall building and you look over the edge of it and you hear a voice that says jump, that's not 
being like schizophrenic or mentally insane, is it? You know, we have a process of diagnosing and it's by convention. Psychiatrists and psychologists get together and they basically vote. What should we say is the requirement in order to diagnose someone schizophrenic? There are psychotic episodes which are very widespread. A lot of people have psychotic episodes, often drug-induced. You know, they're doing a, a hallucinogenic drug, for instance, and they go too far and they, they can't come back. And we treat them. They stop doing that drug and they do fine for the rest of their life. They are not suffering from schizophrenia. So by convention, what the psychiatrists and psychologists have agreed to, and this is in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, which is in its fifth edition now, is that in order to apply the, the diagnosis of schizophrenia, they have to have multiple psychotic episodes or their psychotic episode has to last more than a certain amount of time, like six months. And at that point we say, oh, okay, maybe we're dealing with schizophrenia here. It's not how they look at one point in time, it's sort of how their progress goes. And people with a um, more um, problematic progress get diagnosed, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that kind of thing. Okay, but my question was like when people look over like a, a roof or a building and they look down and they get a voice in their head that says jump, that's not because that's there's things in society that produce insanity. The French made a term for it called call of the void, which is when you get to a high building. That's normal, though. That's like for, I'm just making sure that because I've heard many friends say the same thing like, yeah, sometimes you get over to an edge and a little small voice in your head goes jump. Joking aside, but like for real, that's not necessarily meaning you're insane. It's just these weird thoughts that kind of intrude, right? That's not like producing insanity because that's what solitary confinement does is produce insanity. There's no passage of time when you're in solitary confinement. Your folk, I mean, it creates insanity, even if you're not insane, if you're just sitting in silence. A lot of times that's a very bad place for a lot of people. I think it can help in some aspects, but the way that these cells are created literally are to be unbearable for you to sit in silence for that time and it can produce insanity. That basically sums up my research. Um, so let me make a distinction. So you talk about hearing voices There's also paranoia, which is feeling, believing that someone is out to get you or doing you harm when it's actually not reality. If it's reality, that's not paranoia, it's right? The government, that's, that's what it is. Awareness. <laughs> All right, so you take the person who goes to the edge of the building, uh, uh, the roof of the building, and, and says, maybe I'll jump off. Okay, that's not crazy. Okay. Human beings have that kind of thought all the time. Um, what they then do is they say, that's a crazy thought. I'm not going to do it. I usually back away a little bit. That's right. All right, that's a normal reaction. The problem in very severe mental illness is there's no ability to make the assessment, that's crazy, I won't do it. So there's no line between reality and unreality. Now with paranoia, and this is, I say this because it's, it's a good example of what happens in solitary confinement, all of us are paranoid. Paranoia is part of our epistemology. So I uh, call a friend, on the phone and leave a message and the friend doesn't call me back. And I think, oh, he doesn't like me. 
or he's mad at me or some such thing. Two weeks later, I happened to connect with this person and he says, I had COVID and I wasn't answering the phone or messages. And I have the thought, oh, I was paranoid. And I dismiss it. So that little piece of paranoia is a part of how I know the world. That's what I mean. It's part of my epistemology. I walk into a room and there's several people talking on the far side of the room. And I sense that they uh, get quieter when I walk in. And I think, oh, maybe they're talking about me. And I walk up to them and they say, hi, Terry, and smile and everything's fun. Now I say to myself, I think I was being paranoid when I walked in. So it's a moment in all of our thinking. If you're in solitary confinement, you have no way to reality test that initial paranoid thought. So a person in solitary confinement hears officers down the, the runway laughing and, and making jokes and such and has the thought, they're talking about me and they're going to come in here and beat me up and kill me. Now, how do you check whether that's true or not? You're sitting in a cell by yourself with no one to talk to. The only people you have contact with are guards who pass you a meal through a little hole in your door, your metal door, and you've got no way to check that out. So you sit there thinking, they're coming to get me. And then you keep thinking about that because it's a pretty compelling thought. You get anxious, you start moving every piece of movable furniture, and there isn't much in your cell, up against the door to keep you from being attacked. And you keep worrying and worrying more about it because you have no way to reality test it. That's paranoia, but it's bred by the solitary confinement. If you're somebody, back to the issue of schizophrenia, if you're somebody because of genetic or trauma or whatever that is prone to becoming psychotic, having an experience like that where the paranoia builds and the anxiety becomes more intense tends to throw you over into a psychotic episode. It's just the way it works. The ego, which is what we consider the sort of the constructive healthy part of the personality or the psyche, um, is to a certain degree fragile. So if you have too many paranoid thoughts or too angry and you're prone to psychosis, you're gonna be thrown over into a psychotic episode. So that's why empirically, when I go into these solitary confinement settings, I find so many people who are uh, hallucinating, they're paranoid, they look at me with this very uh, terrified stare and I say, oh, this person is acutely psychotic right now during my tour. Now, how come I'm seeing so many people in this one place, which is the solitary confinement unit? It must be that solitary confinement causes that kind of severe mental illness. And the way I say it is that it exacerbates whatever mental illness there already is a proclivity toward. And that's the crisis in the prisons right now. We're using solitary confinement for every sort of problem. You know, the prisons are a dumping ground. What we're doing is disappearing a problem. That's what Mayor Adams is suggesting in New York. We have a bunch of people with serious mental illness on the street. They're doing drugs. They don't have a place to live. Let's lock them up. Now, if we lock them up and get rid of them, we don't have to look at them. 
but they're not going to get good treatment in there in those lockup places because we've cut the budget for the mental health treatment. So what happens is we put a lot of people in prison. We're disappearing the problem that we don't have adequate public mental health services. Well, inside prison, we disappear them again. We take the prisoners that there are no means to manage because there's no programs. Rehabilitation has been cut. The sentences are getting longer. The officers are more prone to beat people up if they break rules. And we're resorting to segregation. We put more and more people in segregation in the hole and that's solitary confinement. What happens in solitary confinement? More of them become more psychotic, breakdown, their breakdown becomes more chronic and permanent. So what have we done to the prevalence of mental illness by putting people in prison who have mental illness and then in prison, putting them in solitary, which is like a uh, exacerbation chamber. And then we've got more and more people with mental illness. Then we have a problem, which we're having across the country in our jails and prisons. We can't release those people. They're too crazy. How do we get so rid of solitary confinement? What's that? How do we get rid of solitary confinement? Like there's got to be a better strategy or a way to make it at least not so madness inducing as well, too. I mean, even if you put a window and I guess people say, well, then that's not a punishment. That's like your own luxury room. And I'm like, well, I mean, if you really look at the cost and then the risk for it, you're putting somebody in solitary confinement and the benefit is that they get punishment or whatever you want to deem as punishment. The worst thing is, is that when they come back out, they might have a chance of becoming more irritable, more insane or more hostile where they're going to be thrown back in again. So now you're just literally creating a problem by keep throwing them back in there and having them keep having to go back in there into a point where it's like becoming a daily thing. And you're like, what the hell's going on? And it's because you basically produced insanity in this person to the point where they can't just define their own reality. Exactly. That's that's my point. Um, there are alternatives. There is a campaign around the country to end solitary confinement, and we're making great headway. Now, you can't just release people from solitary confinement. First of all, there was the problem that got them into solitary confinement. In many states, that's gang involvement or violence on the yard. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's serious mental illness. So we have to do what we should have done in the first place before we put them in prison, before we put them in solitary confinement, and that is provide adequate treatment. We have to spend time talking with them about their psychological problems and why that leads them to break rules or get into fights or whatever. And that costs a certain amount of money up front. For instance, in a jail or prison, I think the mental health staff has to be enriched. Actually, the better way to do it is to decarcerate, to reduce the jail and prison population so that the mental health staff has fewer, a, a smaller caseload and they can do something. But when you release people from solitary confinement, you have to put them in programs and those programs cost a certain amount. Now, the truth is that that amount that it costs to put them in programs, for instance, anger management or getting their medications better uh, organized, um, is less than it costs to keep them in solitary confinement. So in fact, this is a paradox of public funding. You save money by spending money on mental health treatment and rehabilitation so that you don't have an unmanageable person in solitary confinement that you're scared to let out. In fact, 
you go and spend time talking with them, offering them mental health treatment, offering them job training so they can have some hope when they get out of jail or prison that they might make a living. And you increase their visitation. There's a tendency in jail and prison to really clamp down on visitation. And people who have visits with loved ones tend to do better, no matter what's wrong with them, whether their problem is criminal inclination or mental illness, keeping them connected with loved ones, their mother, their wife, their, their children, um, decreases the problem. So you, in an intelligent way, you provide them the things they need to maintain solid mental health, mental stability. That costs a little upfront. It would have cost a little to provide them public mental health care in the community, but it doesn't cost near as much as locking them up in jail, prison, putting them in solitary confinement, and then having the chronic problem after that, that what you've done to them in jail and prison has made their mental illness worse and untreatable. So now you've got someone who you have to take care of the rest of their life. That costs unbelievably more money than providing them a therapist to talk to them back when they started getting in trouble. I think a lot of people would start being aware of this when you lay it out like that, but there is a mindset out there. I mean, if we talk about the connectivity with others and family members, it's the first thing that goes away because it's seen as a reward. Like we're allowing you to see your family members after you've been locked up in here for being a wrong member of society. So it's like, you better stay good or we take that right away from you. And it's like, well, then that might lead to more anger and violence as well too. But there's also like, I wouldn't say it's like a male mentality or a, a, a puff your chest out mentality, but it's like the guards can't give up space because then they look weak in front of the prisoners. And then there's a fear of riots and there's a fear of a bunch of stuff like that. And then the prisoners can't really back up space either because then they look afraid to the people that they're surrounded with. Like, I'm surprised there's not more violence in prisons. I mean, you got a bunch of people jammed up on top of each other. Every You mentioned the education thing, people not getting the education they deserve. I had ADHD. You think a teacher gave me a minute of day? No, send me out of class all the time. So I said, screw the education education system. Well, teachers suck. Life sucks. And that's a mentality that gets bred into people. Why people turn to criminal acts is when they feel like they're being cheated or life never gave them a fair shot in the first place. And I think a lot of that can be fixed. I think it can start with education, but how do you get rid of the old style mindsets that are still in there? The bravado of uh, prisoners, the bravado of guards, this back and forth mentality of nobody giving up space because you see weak. And then this mentality that even sharing mental health, especially if you're a male, is like the worst possible thing you can do. Like, I think we're starting to kind of turn that coin a little bit, but there's a lot of people that don't do it because of the aspect of looking weak and you don't want to look weak in prison. Well, that you're putting your finger on something very important, and it's a cultural development. There's a culture in prison, which uh, being sort of the alpha male and being tough and not being knocked to the bottom of the heap, that's all very important, both among the guards and the prisoners. But what you started talking about is a prime example of what my basic underlying premise is. We need to be very careful that what we do to people in the name of punishment doesn't make their proclivity to break the rules and be violent worse or to be more mentally ill. So when we do something to someone in prison like solitary confinement or beatings or they get raped and that might not be the guards doing it. Sometimes the guards are doing the rape, but 
Other times the guards are just failing to provide a safe place for someone to do their time. But when things like that happen and the mental illness gets worse or the tendency to go back to drugs um, and trauma is very big in this, an awful lot of people behind bars have major trauma throughout their life. And that leads them to use drugs. Then they get in trouble with the law around the drugs. They go to prison. If we do things to them like solitary confinement that cause their tendency to go back to drugs as soon as they get out of prison, we have not accomplished anything good for society. We've made a bad mistake. So I'll, I'll leave that at that. Solitary confinement is like that. It's making mental illness worse. It's making recidivism worse. It's making the tendency to go back to drugs worse. Therefore, it's not a good thing. It's, it's one of the ways we do to people in prison something that makes them more likely rather than less likely to reoffend. Now, in terms of the cultural thing you're talking about, I wrote a paper called Toxic Masculinity as a Resistance to Mental Health Treatment Behind Bars. And this has been one of the most popular articles I've written. What I said is, look, just exactly what you said. Prison yards remind me of junior high school. There are the tough guys, and then there are the weaklings and the chickens, and the names they get called become more and more feminized, that is, you're, uh, you're a punk, you're gay, you're, our, you're a girl. And this kind of stuff actually gets said in prison. It got said in my junior high school. Um, so you have to prove yourself to be at least, you don't have to be the toughest guy, but you have to be able to take care of yourself in such a way that if someone wants to mess with you, they're gonna get hurt. Well, in prison, that is a constant way of life. You have to watch your back. It's a very violent place, our prisons on average, not so much the, the minimal security prisons, but the maximum security prisons. They're very violent. There's a lot of fights. You can get caught up in fights without doing anything. So for instance, someone will attack you and it's to test your mettle. They want to fight. And what they want to see is see what you've got. Now, if you don't do well in that situation, you are going to get victimized you're gonna get robbed, you're gonna get beaten, you may get raped. And therefore you have to buff up and adopt a mean stare and look like you're tough enough to take care of yourself. That's what you have to be. That's not good in our society for, to, to be training men to have a tough stare, to buff up, to keep their cards close to their chest, not to share their feelings, not to let anyone know when they're weak and not to go to for help. And that was the point of my article, that mental health treatment, we need a lot more of it with the population who are in prison. I would get them out of prison, that is decarcerate, and then give them the mental health care they need. But they can't accept it because they think that it makes them less manly to admit that they have emotions giving them trouble, that they're suicidal, um, they're hearing voices, so they won't admit it. They keep it to themselves. They don't use mental health services. Meanwhile, the officers share the same kind of toxic masculinity. You have to be tough, don't, don't cry, don't tell me your problems, etc. And so in prison, the cultural toxic masculinity actually makes the problem worse. You're right. 
Now, How do you fix that? That's I guess that's so ingrained into society. I mean, I, I guess maybe if you had like a horrible incident happen at a prison, which obviously knock on wood, I don't want to happen. But when people start to notice that, yeah, people were all kind of suffering here um, mentally and it's, you know, maybe it's not bad to ask for help. But that would obviously be like a worst case scenario is if something horrible happened at a prison where people saw it and kind of woke up to it. Like we had a in school, I think the whole time I was there in like my high school career, uh, four years that we had like 12 kids that died either of like opioid overdoses or like suicide or something like that, or a horrible drinking and driving accident. And it woke like the whole school up and everyone at the time, I mean, I hate to say it, people were doing something of one of those were either thinking about it in a really dark spot or taking opioids or doing something like that. But a lot of people cut clean. You know, I went to school for chemical dependency because of all the opioid overdoses that people were experiencing in my school. Like it woke us all up. Now, that wasn't a good thing for all that to happen, but it carved a path out for a lot of people to start experiencing this. I mean, if you have a prison and you want to get rid of the prison culture, what's another thing that doesn't have to cause to some point where if a guy kills himself in his cell or something like that, that's the worst possible scenario. So how do we stop it another way by breaking down the cell culture, the prison culture, this mentality, this masculinity aspect? And it, I don't even if you change society standards for it, would it reach the prisons? I mean, that's the main thing. Is that going to reach? Because that's been like that forever. That's how we display it in movies. That's how we do it on a bunch of stuff. So it's like, how do we break that in? We'll start with one or two prisons first and try and find a way to get it home down to a formula or something to be able to make sure that the guards know that there's not this masculinity thing. And the prisoners also know that it's okay to ask for help if you need help and you will be given it. Um, these are all very important considerations. Um, as, as, as a social scientist, I'm a psychiatrist, but that puts me in the realm of social science. I look for what makes change. And then I start with what makes a change. And then maybe we can understand the causality and the way this works. So in prison, one thing that makes a change is crowding. There is a very direct correlation between increased crowding in a prison and an increase in violence psychiatric breakdown and suicide and, and medical conditions too, like heart attacks and that hypertension. Um, and that's a very clear correlation. Our prisons are overcrowded. In, in the imprisonment binge since the 1970s, what we did is we uh, loaded the prisons and jails with 150, 200, 500% of their design capacity. People, particularly on the men's side, men, when they're crowded, have more violence. You can see it in the line to use the phone. So the more people there are on the prison yard, the more people lined up to use the phone. So the guy in the back of the line yells at the guy in the front of the line, hey, get off the phone, I have to talk to my wife. And they get into a fight. That's how it works. Crowding leads to violence. So reducing the crowding is one way to reduce what you're describing. It won't get rid of the culture, but it will reduce the problem. Now, in the United States, what that was a, a massive uh, extreme in the 1980s. We had so much violence in the prisons, we just couldn't contain it. The prisons were massively overcrowded. There were four times their design capacity, and they'd multiplied by the population by four times since the 1970s. 
And I and all of the experts I know said, you know what you have to do? Decrease the population by a lot and increase the rehabilitation program so people have something they don't want to give up by getting into disciplinary trouble. And your violence rate will go down. And the prison authorities said, thanks a lot. We're going to do this other plan. We're going to put the worst of the worst in solitary confinement. Now, the second thing, I just shared this research finding that crowding causes violence and mental breakdown. Solitary confinement makes mental illness worse, as I've already explained. So now they put everybody that was in trouble in solitary confinement, and guess what? The rate of psychosis went up. The rate of suicide, half of prisons, uh, you know, only about four or five or maybe 8% of prisoners are in solitary confinement. But more than 50% of the suicides in prison occur in solitary confinement. So there's a direct cause there. Reducing the use of solitary confinement would help, not solve, but help the problem. Reducing the population massively would help. Therefore, there's two things that I advocate to solve the problem you're discussing. And then we have to talk about culture and toxic masculinity and all of that kind of thing. But the two things are end solitary confinement, flat out, no solitary confinement. We don't need it. And I'm not talking about a week or 10 days in segregation for getting in a fight. That's not the issue. It's months and years in solitary, which is what's going on around the country. And it causes massive human damage. End it. End solitary confinement. Second, massive decarceration. We don't need two and a half million people in prison. It is not helping. It's decimating the communities from where they come. These are mainly poor people and people of color. And you will find in the communities from where they come that there's family breakdown because daddy or mommy is in jail. Stop that, get people out of jail and prison, and then solve the problems that led them to jail and prison. Again, my expertise happens to be mental health. And what I, the way I would say it is set up adequate mental health treatment programs in the community. We actually have them, they're just defunded. So we know how to do this work, but those centers are starving for resources because each year, the county or the state or the feds cut their budget because they're a social safety net program and there's this move to you know not increase the deficit and that kind of thing increase their budget so that we can move people out of the jails and prisons into programs for instance substance abuse treatment mental health treatment anger management job skills literacy 40% of people who go to prison are illiterate. That is just such a shame for our society. That means our education system is failing. And our education, public education has been deteriorating since the 60s. Improve the public education, particularly do things with the kids who are on the edge of being expelled because they have a learning disability, because they have some behavioral problems, because they have traumas at home and give them the resources they need to succeed in school. And we will have less of a prison and criminal problem. So those are the things that would change the culture. Then I agree with you. 
we have to take on this kind of cutthroat, hypermasculine posturing that goes on among prisoners and goes on among guards. Now it goes on in corporate America too, as you know, there's top dogs and bottom of the heap in corporation, but we consider that normal. That's, that's an appropriate expression of your male aggression is to fight and climb the ladder to be CEO. We, we think that's cool or, or to become rich or famous, but in jail and prison, it's extremely destructive. And for instance, I've done a series of cases where officers sexually abuse women, including rape, women prisoners. And we go to court and we fight about that and we win the lawsuit and we're settling, we're, we're developing a consent degree and we make decisions like um, they have to have a peer review system so that officers who sexually abuse women prisoners uh, will be fired. Okay, that officer gets fired, then goes to the next state and applies for a job in the prison. And now you've multiplied the problem and they're gonna abuse women in that prison. So one tiny little thing, you have to do a lot of things, but one tiny little thing is that in your hiring procedure, Hire people who are empathic and care for others and want to help prisoners straighten out their lives. Make that a requirement of getting a job in the prison. Also do a background check that includes a national search for all incidents of DUIs, domestic violence, crimes, and sexual abuse in other state prison systems. And if you do that, you will get rid of some of the bad apples. Then do very serious training. You know, in court, when there's a problem like officers sexually abusing prisoners, what the court says, well, let's, let's do some training to keep them from doing that. Someone who is a perpetrator of, of just rank sexual abuse is not gonna benefit from training. They should not be hired in a prison system or in any place where they have control of the other people. And they should be in treatment of some sort and they should try to fix their problem. But the people who are locked up should not suffer because of their inability to fix the problem. So they need to be fired. The people that are hired need to be caretakers. People who work with individuals who suffer from mental illness in jail and prison need to be people who want to take care of people who have mental illness and help them regain their mental stability. They need to have that as a personal motivation. When you go in and do training in a prison, and I've done a lot of it, what you find is two groups of officers. One group of officers is very interested in what you're saying. So I'll say things like, you know, I think men have a lot of problems because they keep their cards close to their chest. I think that creates loneliness and it would be much better for men in general to talk to each other talk to women, not put down women. There's a, about half the staff are going to say, that's right. Say more about that. Tell me how to accomplish that. The other half is going to be sitting in the back of the room with their arms crossed. They're not listening. They don't care about what I'm talking about. My training is not going to work for them. That's a problem of hiring and supervision. People who are misogynistic, who are abusive to prisoners should not be hired. And if they slip through and get hired, 
And, and you know about this because on the street, this is the police who shoot young black men. And those people should not be in the police. Um, in prison, they should be, first of all, excluded by hiring selection. And second of all, supervisors should catch their bad acts and discipline them appropriately. It's not a matter of training. Now, for the people who are motivated and they're capable of empathic caretaking, training is great, and we need to do more of it. Well, Terry, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Yes, if you um, go to Wright Institute, W-R-I-G-H-T Institute in Berkeley, California, it's a graduate school of psychology, and I have a faculty page there. And I'm going to link your books as well, too, um, in the description below. And I appreciate the time. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.